This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. Welcome to the first episode of Talking Pop Health. As we begin our exploration of all things pop health related, I can think of no better way to kick things off than by having a conversation with Dr. Lee Sachs, who's widely known as one of the creators of clinical integration and who's been a pioneer in population health since, well, since before it was called population health. This is a rare opportunity to hear why population health care is important, understand what challenges we face, and get a sense of where healthcare delivery in America is headed. Welcome, Lee. Can you tell us a little about your career and what you've done? Well, by training, I'm a family physician. I practiced uh, in the northwest suburbs of Chicago for 13 years, kind of uh, learned uh, what the front line is about, and then progressively got involved in management. And I was the leader of uh, what became Advocate Physician Partners from 1995 until I retired in the summer of 1998. And at the same time, I served as the EVP Chief Medical Officer at uh, Advocate Healthcare uh, and ultimately became Advocate Aurora Health uh, with that and uh, was involved in everything related to uh, clinical care in that organization as well as managed care, clinical integration, population health. So uh, what are you proudest of in your career? You know, as I look back, I think the work we did at Advocate Physician Partners and the team that really paved the way for clinical integration, both in the organization, but really uh, set a precedent uh, in a role model for other organizations across the country. We did a lot of sharing. We put on uh, seminars. We had a small consulting division. And as I look across uh, the country at the different ACOs, Uh, Many of the successful ones have roots uh, coming back to advocate. What were you trying to do uh, to fix things? I think you'd say it was all about achieving what today we call the triple aim, which is uh, improving the quality of care, uh, creating efficiency to reduce the cost, and improving uh, the satisfaction of the patients or the population that we serve. I think almost everybody that goes into healthcare, whether physicians going into medicine or nurses, other professionals, really wants to do that. And we've all been frustrated uh, by the current US healthcare system. But I'd like to think that uh, advocate physician partners and the work in clinical integration started a pivot in that right direction. So, what's wrong with the US healthcare system? Well, it comes down, I think, to the financing mechanism and all of the uh, misaligned incentives and the disparate uh, interests. But uh, historically, U.S. healthcare has been financed on a fee-for-service basis, and basically that leads you to say more is better. And needless to say, there's a tremendous amount of waste in the system, uh, and it's just fueled by that uh, fee-for-service mentality. Sure, but there have been other attempts to address this. Uh, You've got uh, cost containment commissions, you've got certificate of need programs, high deductible health plans. How do these fit in or, or how do they not address the issues? Well, I think the things that you just rattled off all were trying to put guardrails or bumpers around something and they've had minimal success. You really need to Uh, change the the foundation and it comes back to how delivery systems and individuals uh, get paid and I think we are starting to see a shift it uh, really goes back to uh, the ACA in 2010 and uh, changes coming out of Medicare and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation uh, all the experiments Uh, they've thrown so many different models out there I liken it to you know, throwing spaghetti up on the wall, but some of them are showing uh, promise, but it's also leading commercial payers and employers to do the same type of experimentation and recognize that we need a fundamental change in, to create aligned incentives and to get away from uh, rewarding people for doing more. Uh, we want to do the right thing and get rewarded for doing only the right thing and generating high quality outcomes. So you've been doing this for a long time. You know, where did you start on this journey towards population health care? 
you know, way, Eric, actually way back in uh, medical school, I was intrigued with uh, prepaid health care or uh, HMOs. Uh, actually interviewed for residencies in a couple of organizations that were uh, closely tied to health maintenance organizations. And for whatever reason, that wasn't where I matched. Uh, but uh, early in, uh, in my practice career, like the second year, uh, in the early 80s, we were in the midst of uh, a, a bad recession, uh, not quite as bad as what we saw a decade ago, but at the time it was the worst recession uh, following the Great Depression. And the myth that all you had to do was put a shingle out uh, and you could build a practice was getting destroyed. And we saw that uh, patients were migrating to uh, local HMOs. Uh, and there were more coming into the Chicago market. So a group of physicians got together and said, uh, how can we participate uh, in a product like this? And it led to the formation of a hospital physician organization up at uh, what's now Advocate Lutheran General Hospital. So you mentioned uh, clinical integration and you've also mentioned population health. Can you tell us what the difference is between them? So, Let's start with clinical integration. And I use a very specific definition because uh, I don't have to uh, tell a joke with you uh, from the legal perspective, but I've learned that it's a, it's a legal definition. And it's uh, a structured collaboration between and among physicians and hospitals to improve the quality and efficiency of healthcare. Uh, and I liken it to uh, that's the, the foundation that you have to have. What we saw over time was uh, following the ACA and the, the move to, quote, value-based care, uh, the term population health got thrown across virtually every organization and every product. Everybody said they were doing population health. Uh, the way I look at population health is that uh, you're you identify a specific population, whether it's a population that you have a value-based contract for, whether it's your employees, whether it's a specific geography, and you attempt to achieve the triple aim of improving quality, reducing cost, and enhancing the satisfaction of that population. That's how I look at population health, but in most cases, unless you have a completely employed delivery system, uh, you need to be clinically integrated if you're serious about achieving uh, population health. How did you get started in clinical integration? So as Advocate Physician Partners uh, came together and grew from 1995 to roughly 1999, uh, we were taking care of 400,000 professional service capitated lives. And we did a strategic planning exercise and brought in probably 100, 100 150 uh, physicians, mostly you know, from practicing physicians on the front lines. Uh, in an iterative process, I remember they said there's three things that this organization needs to do to be successful. Uh, one, we know that we're creating a lot of value for these HMO patients. We think we're creating the same value for all our other patients, in particular the commercial PPO, which still dominated the market. So help us demonstrate that value. Number two, help us with PPO contracts. And number three, help us with information technology. Number three probably was the hardest thing to do, and it, and it uh, took probably until there were federal incentives to help physicians uh, invest in information technology. But one and two together, really quickly led to what became known as clinical integration. We said that uh, we, we had data that showed the value we're, we were creating. We sat down with payers and we said, uh, this has to be a, a fair partnership that we can create value for the patients that you're insuring, but we need to get something back. And we started to create um, some value-based contracts with incentives tied to quality. Uh, and ultimately, uh, through a prolonged process uh, with the Federal Trade Commission, uh, reached an understanding that what we were doing fit under uh, their definition of clinical integration. But by that time, uh, we had contracts with every payer in the marketplace and had lots of data to d demonstrate uh, how valuable it was. So what population are we talking about here then? Uh, it depends. 
uh, and you can define it in lots of different ways. It could be the population in a specific managed care contract. Uh, it could be your employees. It could be um, a specific uh, group who have a, a, a disease that, that you take a value-based contract to improve uh, their status uh, with, with that. Um, you know, theoretically, it could be the, the population of the metro area that you serve, but the reality is that uh, the, even in a place where a delivery system has an excess market share, uh, they're not going to be responsible for more than 50% uh, of that population. So it's not realistic to think that they could totally uh, invest in improving the population uh, of, of a specific uh, urban or, or suburban area. So let's assume I want to start into Pop Health. Um, where do I begin? I would say you, you need to start with structure, and that takes us back to clinical integration. And w whether you need to technically be clinically integrated across uh, disparate entities or uh, you uh, are all un under the same tax ID number, an organization such as a Kaiser, uh, you need to have that same infrastructure. You need a governance structure. Uh, you need infrastructure in terms of information technology, electronic medical records, uh, databases. You need uh, a compensation system that supports uh, the goals. Uh, you need, uh, what we found was you need transparency that if you can share outcomes uh, with providers, uh, they tend to want to improve. Everybody thinks they're an A student and wants to demonstrate that. Uh, and you need constant feedback loop. And if you have those things in place, you're going to move in the right direction to improve the, the health of the population uh, and at the same time create efficiencies that reduce the total cost of care. So do you need patients to cooperate with you in this process? It's helpful to have benefit plan design that also aligns the patients uh, with the delivery system. Uh, the reality is not all patients are going to cooperate, but I think that if you're doing this well, uh, you're going to have a delivery system that's attractive to patients, and most of them are going to be happy to cooperate. I think all of us who've had an experience as a patient understand how frustrating uh, the healthcare delivery system can be, how hard it can be to navigate it, how you can get uh, caught uh, between providers or lost in the shuffle. And if those things start to go away, uh, patients are gonna be much more uh, cooperative and amenable to uh, what their providers wanna do. How would you characterize the payer attitude towards population health? Um, there's a lot of uh, lip service and uh, you know good PR for, for relationships about what they're doing, but the reality is I've never found payers who've been uh, able uh, to really improve the, the health of a population other than partnering with a delivery system and creating the right incentives. Uh, and you know, the, the reality is, in my experience, most of the time the incentives have still been stilted towards the, the payer, uh, whether it's uh, some of the Medicare shared savings or commercial payers. Uh, when you factor in the cost of additional infrastructure, additional administrative expenses to meet uh, their needs, that the savings that come back to the delivery system uh, frequently aren't even enough to offset the, the additional costs, and yet uh, the, the payer uh, reaps some of that benefit uh, with that. It's only when uh, a payer is, is willing to basically global, globally capitate and create a uh, benefit design that supports that, that a delivery system can reap the real benefits of being successful in population health. So another way of saying it might be uh, payers can't medically manage patients, so they should just get out of the way? I would say it exactly that, and I distinctly remember a meeting in 2010 with the senior leadership of one of the uh, large payers in our market with senior members of the advocate team and we looked at each other and they said we can't manage care and we said you know we're not the payer but together we can do the right things and be more successful let's talk about this a little bit because as we ramp up our new system we'll call it saint elsewhere into pop health and we start emptying out all these hospital beds 
um, you know, how do we transition? Because we've got a lot of fixed costs. I mean, where do we begin there? Well, the reality is it's, it's probably going to be a, a, a gradual improvement, so you're not going to empty 20% of the beds on day one. Uh, I've always advocated that the first place for a hospital system to start is with their own employees to create a benefit design that supports population health and uh, you use that group who tend to be high utilizers to start with uh, and demonstrate that you can Im improve their outcomes and start to reduce costs and then you can use that to uh, move into commercial or uh, Medicare contracts to do that. But I. Uh, I honestly think that uh, some of the hospital-based systems uh, are going to find that they have way too much capacity and that they can't support the capital uh, investments that they have and they're going to need to uh, downsize significantly and some may close uh, with that. Between uh, reducing unnecessary care and the advances in technology and medicine that's leading to so many more things being done as an outpatient as opposed to requiring an, uh, a hospital bed, uh, in most parts of the country, we're going to be way over capacity. So let's assume I dive in on this and I go get my employees in, uh, maybe even go Medicare Advantage, Medicaid Managed Care. I've got protocols and ways of treating patients that are saving people enormous money. Don't the payers just get a free ride there? That's good insight because the reality is most clinicians uh, will treat all their patients in the same manner. Uh, they may not have all the same tools and the data or may not have care managers assigned to patients who aren't in a, uh, a value-based contract, but there, there will be some free riding. And I, I think if a significant part of uh, your population is in a value-based contract and you're successful in Medicare and in Medicaid, there's going to be spillover uh, to the commercial side. Uh, and that's where, uh, you know, having the, the data and understanding the impact that you're having uh, hopefully will either allow you to uh, restructure some of the contracts or possibly go direct to employers uh, and say, uh, let's uh, eliminate the middleman except for somebody who can handle the transactions because uh, if you're willing to commit to our delivery system, uh, we can be 10, 15, 20% better on costs with higher satisfaction and uh, proven uh, top-notch outcomes. Hmm. So as we transition and we begin this, we've got our employees in the kitty, we've got a couple of other programs, Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, you know, how would you recommend transitioning in as far as the, the payer world, the private payers? Well, I, the, first of all, the products that you just mentioned are probably more than half of the business between uh, Medicare and Medicaid, and Medicare Advantage is going to grow uh, probably double-digit uh, amounts year over year just because of uh, the cost advantage with that. Uh, you know, right now we're in a very... Uh, record low uh, unemployment rate uh, and employers are very skittish about changing uh, benefit design or health care contributions but some point in the future there's going to be a recession and change uh, that I think we'd all say is a certainty and just nobody knows is it going to be in a year or in five or ten years but when that happens uh, and the labor market loosens up uh, there will be a lot of pressure on costs and employers will be much more open to uh, either putting pressure on the commercial payers to, to make changes that will align to reduce costs and improve quality, or they'll start to seek out uh, direct-to-delivery system uh, contracts uh, with, with that. So I think you need to be ready. You need to have data that supports that you can do it and be successful uh, in Medicare and Medicaid in particular, because in every market I know of, Neither one of those cover uh, all the costs of, of care right now. So taking unnecessary costs out and starting to create a margin uh, will help sustain a delivery system in the near term and better position you for when it, uh, the commercial market is ready. Sure, but I can't plunge right in and take full cap, right? I mean, you know, there has to be a lot of data and a lot of analysis done before I can, can contemplate doing that, right? 
Yeah, I, I think you need to be realistic and have a glide path uh, in whether it's you know, partial capitation for professional services, whether it's some of the uh, Medicare shared savings, some of the bundled payment programs. Over a couple of years, you can collect a lot of data and insights and understand uh, who the uh, poor performers are, or where the, the waste is, and at the same time start to create that culture. Uh, I, I keep going back to uh, a, a class probably 25 years ago, and we all laughed when they put on the board that culture eats strategy for lunch every day. Uh, if you create the culture, uh, you'll be successful. It has to be a, a, a culture of uh, a delivery system that wants to be successful in population health. So where does the physician fit in this culture? Physicians are key. They, I think they need to play a significant role in, in leadership because they have insights. And I'm talking about physicians who truly have taken care of patients and have been in a delivery system uh, that's focused on value uh, with that, uh, that on-the-job learning uh, is really important uh, with that. But it takes physicians to gain the trust and respect of the physicians in the delivery system. Uh, to help them make the changes, to help them understand the data. Uh, every physician thinks they're doing a, a, the right thing and a great job, and the initial reaction to any piece of data is it must be wrong. Uh, so you have to be able to, to sit down and gain their trust and confidence and help them understand what the challenges are and the opportunities uh, to make uh, changes to uh, better align with population health. Sure, but every system has a chief medical officer, um, so there is physician leadership, or are you talking about something more? Well, it, when I talked about infrastructure, uh, one of the things that comes to mind is that you need local physician leadership, uh, you know, depending on the size of the organization, but certainly my experience as chief medical officer in an organization that had 5,000 aligned physicians and a couple thousand more just on the medical staff, it, there was no way I could interact with even a fraction of them, let alone know them and know their nuances. But we had uh, local chief medical officers and local medical directors. And one of the things I always insisted on was that the local managed care medical director had to be a practicing physician who had the respect of the colleagues in that service area. So you're really talking about um giving the physicians a voice up and down the organization, not just sort of a, a top-down driven uh, if, voice? If top-down is not gonna work, uh, I came to use a term that I took from my nursing colleagues about shared governance. And shared governance really uh, reflected the fact that the frontline practitioners had input uh, into the strategy and the governance. And without that, you're not gonna be successful. So, um you know, as I transition towards pop health at, at St. Elsewhere, you know, is there any low-hanging fruit? Um, you know, where, where could I start with actual programs? So most of the low-hanging fruit related to generic prescribing has been squeezed out through uh, benefit design, but that was an area that, that we put a big focus on and saved multi-millions of dollars in the, the first few years. The, the next level of low-hanging fruit are the very frequent chronic conditions, uh, things like diabetes, congestive heart failure, uh, COPD. The issue with those is that much of the savings comes over a number of years. Now you can demonstrate improved quality and get rid of some small amounts of waste in, initially, uh, but t getting big savings in diabetes means taking care of a population for many years and avoiding the, the serious end-stage uh, complications. But it's an opportunity to start to impact an important segment of the population and collect data to demonstrate uh, the improved quality and the short-term outcomes. Um, you know, would some other conditions be, say, asthma, cardiac patients, that kind of thing? Or? You know, the, uh, some other conditions that probably lend themselves to short-term savings are the ones that the bundled payment uh, initiatives have focused on. Uh, I look at that for like discrete surgical procedures uh, like joint replacements, cardiac surgery, 
uh, spine surgery or even you could expand that a bit to back care. It's uh, pretty well known that there's a lot of unnecessary care related to uh, back pain and avoiding unnecessary surgery, uh, avoiding uh, unnecessary or, or prolonged uh, physical therapy, uh, things like that can generate savings. Another area for commercial population is obstetrics. It, it's a you know nine to 10 or 11 month uh, cycle and making sure that uh, patients get all the appropriate prenatal care and everything that you can do to avoid uh, complications in premature birth can have a, a big impact uh, both on outcomes but also every day you save in a neonatal intensive care unit uh, you start to multiply thousands and thousands of dollars with, with that. So those are areas that, that I would certainly focus on and try to create uh, physician-driven uh, protocols to standardize care. So uh, let's look at the other side of the coin. You know, what mistakes have you observed um, other entities or, or even experienced yourself in implementing population health? Um, m mistakes would, would include uh, things like uh, overconfidence, uh, not having uh, an integrated electronic health record, not having access uh, to all the data. Um, I, I can't quite recall the title, but there was an article about five or six years ago. It was only two pages in the Journal of American Medical Association by Steve Shortell and an associate, and it was the 10 mistakes that ACOs make, and it really uh, resonates that uh, it was something that I frequently shared in talks and said, keep this in front of you and make sure that you're not going down one, one of these roads because they're all uh, too common. But a lot of it tied to overconfidence. And as you know, you suggested earlier, you don't want to jump in and take a, a global capitation or full risk contract on day one without any experience. Because you'll have probably a bad result financially and that will undermine the, the culture and the confidence that you need to go forward. Lee, you know, what have you experienced around behavioral health and population health care? As we started to look at our data, it was a real eye-opener about how behavioral health issues drive expenses. And one, what we found was that uh, about a third of our medical surgical inpatients had a behavioral health comorbidity, and that if we could address that, we could shorten their inpatient stays and lower the total cost of care. And behavioral health was clogging up the emergency departments because of lack of access. So creating uh, a way to provide those services, and that's where technology came in. Uh, we deployed telemedicine uh, so that we could connect all of the emergency departments with a central hub that could be staffed with a psychiatrist uh, and other ancillary providers who could uh, help evaluate uh, patients in the emergency department, prescribe appropriate therapy, and in many cases, instead of sitting in the ED for three, four, or five days waiting for an inpatient bed, uh, the prescribed medication took effect and they could be discharged home the next day uh, and followed up uh, as an outpatient. Uh, we also uh, created multidisciplinary inpatient rounds uh, so that every one of these medical surgical patients was looked on for behavioral health conditions and they could be addressed uh, in real time and showed that it started to have a significant impact in reducing length of stay and reducing overall cost of care. So we've talked a lot about um, the information systems. There are a lot of different data sources out there. You know, how hard was it to get them all to talk to each other, link them together, and find actionable data and uh, drill down on particular patients? Um, you know, I'm not the, the tech geek, but I think my former team would kick me if I didn't say it was very hard uh, w with that. Uh, we had multiple electronic health records, but you're also talking about claims data, uh, pharmacy data, lab data, uh, and ultimately you probably want to get some of the uh, socioeconomic data about your population. Uh, we partnered uh, with, with Cerner because uh, we had a common vision and helped them uh, create uh, what they called the Healthy Intent Platform, a cloud database. And 
uh, over a couple of years we're able to put all of those disparate data feeds, I think at one point we were getting uh, data from 50 or 60 different uh, sources, and then the challenge is to create a unique patient identifier so that Lee Sachs in a lab result is the same Lee Sachs in the physician's electronic record and in the hospital electronic record. It sounds easy, but it isn't, because sometimes I register with my middle name and sometimes I don't, and I've got a cousin with the same name, and just think if it was John Smith, how uh, easy it would be to uh, mix up re records. But ultimately, over the course of a couple years, we felt that we were 99.5% accurate with a, an identifier, and with that database, we could start to produce uh, re reports in real time uh, that showed clinicians uh, all the things that they needed to know uh, in terms of managing their patients as well as how they were doing with their population. So I've got this massive data warehouse uh, with every fact imaginable. How do I then determine an actionable intervention? How do I change care? So we used our clinicians to sit down and identify the, the disease conditions that were amenable uh, to changes. And, and every year we would set goals for managing conditions like diabetes or asthma or, uh, or coronary artery disease. And we would uh, set the targets out and we would show the physicians what their baseline performance was. And it used to be that they could get quarterly reports, but ultimately online it became real time so that they could see uh, how they were performing and even uh, with the patients that were coming in today who were the outliers who needed uh, special attention. And it, as I think I've alluded to uh, earlier, uh, when you give clinicians credible data, they do the right thing. Uh, it moves the entire population in a direction of improvement. Some will move faster than others. The other key is some transparency. Uh, we migrated to total transparency over a number of years. I think today organizations will move much quicker. But once uh, physicians know that the results on all of the agreed upon metrics are available to everybody else in the network and even to their patients, uh, they get very serious about making sure that they're not an outlier in the, in the wrong direction uh, with that. I, I can share a, a quick anecdote. Uh, one year, uh, one of our local physician leaders decided to put names in the doctor's lounge of those who scored 100% uh, on our metrics. And as soon as he did that, people came in and said, well, gosh, I had a 98 or a 99. Shouldn't my name be up there? And it just told you the power uh, of that transparency. So um, you've got a lot of data in your network. What, what happens when a patient goes out of network for care? Uh, out of network was always a, a frustration. The, the claims data clearly lagged a long time. Uh, we were under the delusion that uh, re electronic records would become interoperable and that we would be able to uh, both share information when our patients went out of network as well as seek what was done. And that became very frustrating uh, with, with that. And um, it, it was an issue. And I think that if you're serious about uh, managing a population, you need a benefit design that really incents patients to stay in network for everything except true emergencies or travel with that. And uh, our experience was that with that type of benefit design, over 90% of the care was in our network, but with a loose design like regular Medicare or commercial PPO, uh, 40 to 50% of the care uh, was out of network. And we're talking about an urban area like Chicago where there's lots of uh, credible competition, academic medical centers and geography can be an issue. Uh, but look at the, the difference between, you know, half the care out of network versus under 10%. Um, so as you get all these data systems, where, what do you think the future holds as far as artificial intelligence and population health care? Do you think that's a credible solution to a lot of issues, or do you think it's sort of a little out there right now? There's a lot of bright people uh, trying to figure out how to use artificial intelligence to uh, help improve health care. I'm serving on an advisory board of a company uh, who has 
used a large uh, claims database, upwards of 20 million claims, to be able to predict which patients are going to be expensive in the next uh, 12 months. It's pretty impressive with a very high level of uh, accuracy. And the next iteration is of those patients, which ones can uh, benefit from an intervention uh, that can successfully alter their course and lower the costs and improve their care. Uh, I think we're going to see a, a, a lot of uh, opportunity with large data and artificial intelligence. Can data do it alone? No, because uh, w one of the reasons uh, I was asked to join this advisory board as well as a, a few other uh, clinicians was the reality that uh, you have to be able to interpret the data and you have to understand uh, what's actionable and, and what isn't uh, with that. And obviously that's going to change over time as there's newer medications, there's newer uh, interventional procedures with that. But you have to leverage uh, the, you know, the, the science and the softer side of, of medicine and clinical care with the objectivity of the hard data and what the artificial intelligence engine is telling you. So with data being so important um, in the process of clinical integration and population health, are there any lessons that you've learned around um, you know, how to scale interoperability, how to, how to get all that data together in one place where it becomes uh, usable? Yeah, Eric, I think in hindsight, that's probably one of the uh, most important lessons or bitter lessons that I've learned. Uh, my former organization grew up with multiple vendor partners in EMRs different, uh, in different medical groups with the ambulance, the non-employed clinically integrated physicians and another product in the hospitals. And in spite of that, we, we did a really good job of uh, achieving our goals and ultimately created one cloud database that had all the information. But from a patient perspective and from a frontline clinician perspective, having access to all the relevant uh, clinical information in real time really differentiates you in, in terms of uh, avoiding duplication and waste. Uh, and for a long time, we honestly felt that there would be true interoperability, much like all the banks, ATMs will work regardless of what bank you're, you're with. Um, it isn't close to happening, and I'm not sure it's going to happen in the rest of my lifetime. Uh, so in, in hindsight, um, the benefit of having one vendor partner that can provide in and outpatient and uh, home health services all on a single platform really differentiates you. And uh, you look around the country at the organizations that are really have become premier in uh, successful in population health, and that's a, a key ingredient. It, it's not a absolute, but it certainly makes it a, a lot easier. And if you're if for somebody or an organization that's just getting started now, I would think really hard of, about getting alignment with a, a, an electronic health record that's across the entire continuum. Uh, how would it? How would your answer differ if it was the same EHR provider, Epix or what have you, but different builds? So we've got you know Saint Elsewhere and Saint Nowhere, and they combine and they both use one of one or the other of those, <clears throat> and uh, you've got to adjust it. I mean, you know, they do have different builds. They they scrape different data. Just what do you think about that? Um, the so yeah, having different builds or different instances of the same vendor, and we see that even in uh, you know modest-sized systems that have had acquisitions, that uh, one part of the system is on uh, one instance and another's on a, a different one. Um, th that's probably second best to having uh, one instance across the whole organization. Let's look to the future here, uh, shifting gears slightly. Um, what do you think is going to happen if the Affordable Care Act is repealed or invalidated, and how is that going to affect public health? It's a frightening and, and fascinating uh, conversation to have. I mean, one, there's about 20 million uh, people who will lose coverage, mostly uh, through the expansion of Medicaid, um, and that would be very unfortunate, uh, which uh, will create a lack of access for a lot of people. 
uh, and probably will undermine a lot of the uh, plans that have focused on growing Medicaid managed care uh, with, with that and needless to say from the delivery system perspective uh, create a lot of bad debt uh, and probably greatly increase emergency department inappropriate utilization because that'll be the only place they can get access. Um, on the commercial marketplace, probably won't have as a dramatic effect. Uh, I think one of one of the key things uh, that we we sometimes lose track of, though, was uh, getting rid of the restrictions on pre-existing conditions from the Affordable Care Act, and that would would, would be a shame because what what I used to see was that people. Uh, pro, um, postponed retirement or stayed in a marriage where a spouse had access to employer-based insurance because they knew they couldn't buy a policy in the individual marketplace because of their pre-existing conditions that it would be exorbitantly uh, expensive. Um, the irony, and I've been on a soapbox about this in other places, that in spite of the Affordable Care Act, they never dealt with pre-existing conditions for Medicare. Uh, and that uh, if you sign up for a, a Medicare supplement or a Medicare Advantage managed care plan and you decide to change or you move to a different geography and you need a new plan, uh, you suddenly uh, get rated with pre-existing conditions. Your base Medicare would, would stay the same, but uh, the attractive plans like Medicare Advantage uh, are portable and if you, if you would switch uh, suddenly if you had an existing condition, uh, you become much more expensive. That's kind of uh, below the, off the radar screen of most people until it happens and then you go, oh my gosh, I can't afford health care anymore. Yeah, well I gotta admit, that's a new one to me. So, interesting. Um, regardless of what happens with the ACA, um, you know, what do you think is gonna happen in population health care, let's say over the next five years, you know, where, where do you see things going? I, I think it's going to get more sophisticated and more successful in terms of achieving the goals of higher quality, lower cost, and, uh, and a better uh, patient slash uh, consumer experience. And I see that ultimately driven by the marketplace, uh, that there, there's going to be incredible pressure uh, by the purchasers of healthcare to lower costs and there's all these disruptive uh, innovations and, and companies that are looking to take a, a piece of the healthcare dollar. I mean, the reality is healthcare is consuming over 18% of the GDP. Uh, I can't count that high, but it's a, a huge number. So if you can disrupt and make profit on a half a percent of that, uh, that still is a huge number. You'd probably be in the Fortune 500. Uh, so there's all kinds of in investor money, private equity, venture capital, uh, looking to do those things. And ultimately, uh, many of them will fail, but some of them will be successful and help uh, advance the, the, the ball forward on population health. Sure, but in order to do population health, you know, a lot of times, don't you have to cover a, a significant geography? And there's more and more uh, feedback, almost background noise, I would call it, uh, indicating that, boy, when providers do get that geographic coverage, rates go up. Um, you know, how would you respond to that? You know, there certainly have been uh, publications about how provider consolidation leads to higher costs. Uh, I. I think that m most of those studies uh, predate serious uh, efforts at population health and value-based purchasing. But I come back to, as long as there's some competition in the marketplace and the, the pressures of the payers, whether it's an insurer representing self-insured employers or uh, em employers going uh, direct to the marketplace, if there's a credible organization uh, that can uh, take on uh, the, the risk uh, for both the clinical risk and the financial risk for managing a population and do that better than others in the marketplace, uh, they're going to grow uh, their market share and the competition will help uh, you know, keep the 
pricing reasonable. You know, just in the last couple of weeks, there was another uh, big paper uh, that reaffirmed the the data that says there's at least 25% waste in the U.S. healthcare system. So just think if you could take 10% of that out over the next five years and keep costs flat, uh, you would be incredibly attractive because today everybody is seeing that healthcare costs go up more than inflation, and it's uh, you know to the point where it's really crippling. Uh, economic growth and the ability to compete globally. Well, do healthcare costs rise faster than inflation? Because I know a lot of providers who say, you know, they're bleeding money. Um, they would tell you they're not making much money at all, and and they're not increasing rates. They make less every year. Well, when when I say healthcare costs are going up more than inflation, it's what we're spending uh, overall on healthcare. Uh, and it gets parsed in different places, and whether it's the, the profits of the uh, insurance companies or the profits of the pharma and device manufacturers, it's not spread equitably uh, with that. Uh, the other thing, I think there's been repeated studies that show, uh, based on Medicare, when Congress would freeze physician reimbursement, the volume would go up. Uh, so if uh, payers are, uh, you know, signing contracts with hospitals that are freezing rates or having rate decreases, I suspect you'll see unbundling of services and a push to, to do uh, more discretionary services to, you know, to make up in volume what you've lost on, on unit price. And that's the you know, unfortunate uh, downside of the fee-for-service system, uh, that it creates the wrong incentives. Well, so let's assume I get my St. Elsewhere health system up and running, and I'm doing population health in a geography. Uh, and, and things are going well, but the other providers in that market are traditional fee-for-service. Um, you know, how do you think that those other systems would respond to that? I mean, they, they'd still get paid on their unit volume, and, you know, I can't see that that would necessitate a change in behavior by them. I think the only point you'll see a change in behavior is when St. Elsewhere starts to grow significant market share because they're creating more value for, for that marketplace. And if uh, their volumes of the population served starts to go up and the other uh, competitors start to see that uh, they have fewer appointments, fewer surgeries, some more empty beds, uh, they'll wake up. Now, I think you, you may start to see that in some markets and unfortunately, uh, there's many organizations that are going to bleed fee-for-service uh, until there's nothing left. Uh, and they run the risk that they won't be able to turn on a dime. I, I liken it to musical chairs. When the music stops, not everybody has a seat. Uh, and you know, if you're a physician group or you're a hospital, you want to make sure that you're looking far enough forward that there's a seat for you. So where do you see the tipping point being? Um, I, th I think Medicare Advantage uh, is going to become the lever that creates a tipping point in the next few years. And the reason I say that is that um, th there's a decided uh, cost advantage for individuals to sign up for Medicare Advantage versus regular Medicare with a, a supplement. Uh, and you know, these days, most retirees don't have uh, insurance uh, from their employer anymore. That's a benefit that's gone by the wayside in the last generation. So they're going to be dependent on, on Medicare, and it's an individual choice, and you get to make it every year. And just judging by the amount of marketing that's going on today, because we're in the middle of the open enrollment period, um, it's becoming very consumer-driven. And the organizations that can figure out how to partner with, or create their own Medicare Advantage payer and grab market share because, uh, you know, I think 10,000 uh, seniors are aging into Medicare every day in the U.S., and that's probably going to go on for the next decade till we get to the end of the baby boomers. Uh, in many markets, that's the only growth opportunity uh, where populations have been fairly flat and stagnant, so it may start to differentiate, and I think that uh, employers will take notice and want to have the same type of options with more restricted networks that create value um, as they feel more cost pressure. They'll offer 
a, a broad network that they've traditionally done, but the cost differential for their employees is going to be so great uh, that short of the you know highly compensated senior executives, nobody's going to you know rationally think that uh, th they would want to spend their money that way. So <clears throat> you seem to be hinting that consumers will give up choice in return for reduced costs. Is, is that what you're saying? I, I think we're going to see that. And obviously, there has to be a significant cost difference. And giving up the choice means <laughs> possibly leaving somebody or, or some uh, organization that you're familiar with, but going to one that, that you know um, is very credible and will be able to uh, meet your needs with that. Uh, I think we've seen that in the airline industry, uh, that it's very price sensitive and clearly nobody wants to get on a plane that they're not comfortable is going to get them to their destination and get them you know, reasonably close to on time. Uh, but the, the healthcare market will continue to evolve over the next you know, five to ten years and move more towards a real marketplace. So how do you see that affecting specialty hospitals such as children's hospitals or um, maybe even broader, the, the academic hospitals? You know, I think the, the transparency in data is going to take the halo off of some of those places. Uh, one, they tend to be very expensive, and yes, they, some of them offer very unique uh, services, uh, but uh, there's also a, a lot of waste in, in unnecessary care and no focus on uh, efficiency in many of them. Uh, the ones that are strategic will figure out that they can partner uh, and be um, in, in, a, in a network where they can add value and get you know quaternary types of referrals, but there'll be a shakeout there as well. So do you think um, that one strategy for St. Elsewhere as it grows, um, maybe it doesn't have to push into that high-end care, it doesn't even have to provide it, it can just acquire that on a unit of care basis itself um, through its own plan? It's very possible. It, it depends on the market, but if you're in a market uh, like Chicago where there's uh, seven academic medical centers, uh, there's probably a lot of competition for high-end quaternary care, and you could probably buy it on the, on the marketplace or negotiate an, a, a favorable financial arrangement knowing that uh, your partner knows that there's all kinds of alternatives if they can't meet your needs. If you're in a, a more uh, you know, rural geography uh, where there isn't a lot of access to quaternary care, uh, you probably want it to be part of your system because otherwise uh, you're, you may become a price taker and it could become exorbitantly expensive. I mean, there's reality in terms of how far it's realistic to transfer patients and uh, to ask them to, to move, for, especially for things that aren't elective. How far will patients travel for care? I, I think we're starting to, to see some real experiments. There's certainly a number of national employers that uh, were trying to send elective uh, cases like joint replacements or spine surgery to centers of excellence. And it started off with one center uh, the Cleveland Clinic got a lot of notoriety with contracts. Uh, now it seems to be they're more regional, that uh, you might not have to go two-thirds of the way across the country from the West Coast, uh, but they're looking for five or six regional centers that will adhere to uh, similar protocols uh, with, with that. Um, there's only a handful of conditions that lend themselves uh, to that. But within a geography, I think you're going to see uh, hospitals evolve to, to specialize in different areas as part of St. Elsewhere. There may be a, a center of excellence for obstetrics that could, depending on your population, could do 10 or 15,000 deliveries and be really focused on you know everything related to obstetrics and another center that's uh, focused on minimally invasive surgery or orthopedics. Uh, with that, uh, it's the, the old adage about the focus factory. Um, you know, as a physician, it, it hurts me to think that a lot of the work I or my colleagues do uh, could be likened to a production line, but it really is if you want to get variation out uh, with that and having the same team doing the same thing over and over again 
uh, is the quickest way to end, to reduce your unnecessary costs and to drive high uh, quality outcomes. So another way to frame this might be to say, are you telling me that population health is functionally commoditizing medicine? I'm going to disagree a little bit uh, w with that because I, when, I, when I think about commoditize, I think about uh, picking and choosing and, and buying you know, individual items like on Amazon or, or walking into Walmart and uh, there's five different shampoos and their prices are all on the shelf and you decide what you want to do. Uh, at, at the end of the day, a lot of those choices have to be made by the delivery system and the providers, and they have to be made in advance uh, because things evolve in real time. If you're having a heart attack, uh, that's not the time to be shopping uh, and looking at data. You need to have trusted that the organization that you've trusted your care to has done that and has outstanding care you know, to deal with the heart attack, whether it's the emergency department, the cath lab, uh, if you need to have a stent or if you need to have uh, surgery uh, with that. So it, it, you, it could be likened to a commodity, but it's on a much larger scale. But let, let's be clear here, you know, in the case of a heart attack, you're going to the closest available ED and that's a functional plan design. You, you can't possibly imagine that under population health people would say, oh, you can only go to St. Elsewhere's EDs because there will be times when you just have to go to the closest place and that's, that's priced in. Yeah, no, that's, that's true and there's, there's a handful of conditions, heart attacks and strokes and major trauma that are time sensitive uh, and, and everybody agrees that you need to go to the closest place to have the best outcome, but there's a next level of uh, conditions. Uh, that, that still evolve pretty quickly. Uh, and again, you, you want to pick the system that's designed to provide the best outcomes at a, you know, an efficient price, as opposed to saying, well, gosh, I want to uh, have my surgery at St. Elsewhere, but I'll do my follow-up at, at you know, St. Here's uh, with a different group of, uh, uh, of therapists with, with that. Uh, most, most patients, won't have the sophistication to be able to manage that in the uh, interaction uh, between the various caregivers. That's where you want to rely on a truly integrated organization. That makes sense. Um, how do you think improved technology is going to affect healthcare in the coming five to ten years? Um, I think we're only limited by our imagination. As I think back over uh, my career in medicine, uh, there been so many advances related to technology, uh, to um, pharmaceuticals that have eliminated, uh, you know, diseases or been allowed you to, to manage them, have eliminated expensive and dangerous procedures, and that's going to continue. So what does that mean? It probably means uh, fewer inpatient uh, days. Uh, with that, much more uh, care at home, many more procedures done in ambulatory settings, whether it's a surgery center, a cath lab, or an outpatient uh, GI lab, and the level of sophistication of those procedures is just going to continue to grow uh, as the devices become uh, more sophisticated, as uh, clinicians become more uh, comfortable using them and having fewer complications, they'll determine that it's safe to do things on an outpatient basis that we didn't dream about five years ago. How much of a hurdle are insurance requirements or employer preferences uh, for geographic coverage and network design? It, it's been a challenge and I think some of it, uh, it, it is because of the lack of data. Uh, and listening to loud voices saying that I need, you know, Saint this and Saint that uh, in, in the network, uh, and certainly, especially when it's senior executives uh, with, with that. And in, in certain marketplaces, you know, there's neighborhoods where the senior executives live, and expensive organizations tend to be put in network be, because uh, historically they have a reputation. I think that's going to change with more data and transparency on cost and quality and break through some of the myths. Uh, everybody wants to have the best outcomes uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm generalizing, but it's it, in most cases it's not the places with the fancy reputations that drive the best outcomes. And then when you factor in the difference in price, 
people and employers and the benefits team at the employer will make more rational decisions. But we need transparency. Um, you know, under the current system, do you, do you think competition is working and healthy? Um, you know, because a traditional economist would say, boy, the more healthcare providers we have in a given market, um, well, of course the cost will be lower and everything will be better and people will be able to choose. Um, how do you view that? Well, the, I mean, the reality is that uh, for most people, the, the price is irrelevant because of their insurance other than, uh, you know, even if with a high deductible plan, uh, there's certain elective items that uh, are price sensitive, like outpatient imaging and, and lab testing. Uh, and there's entities that have come into markets and have dramatically lowered the price there. But the real costs are the patients who exceed that deductible with the chronic conditions or the catastrophic conditions. And once you exceed, you're, you're out of pocket. Uh, you're immune to the price, uh, even if you could know what Hospital A or System B was charging, uh, it's all the same, you paid your premium with, with that. So, you know, as, as more discrete networks evolve and, the, and with insurance products that have pricing uh, that's unique to, to that network, uh, that's where the decisions will be made and that's where competition will help uh, lower the costs. I think you start to see that in Medicare Advantage as, they, as many of the plans have very discrete networks and have different benefits and different pricing, uh, and uh, it, they continue to add benefits as part of the competition there to become more attractive and enroll more people, and the fact that every year there's open enrollment. So if you're not meeting the needs of your population, they can leave you the, the following year and, and move somewhere else. So, um how does network size correlate with the ability to take risk and and total cost of care? You know, a, again, a lot of economists would argue that as health systems get bigger, they just impose more costs. Yeah, the, I think what's important if you're going to uh, take risk uh, for a population is that your network has to be right-sized to be able to provide access to all the necessary services. In other words, you have enough primary care physicians so that with a reasonable workload they can meet the needs of the population that you're uh, at risk for and then have access to the appropriate specialty services. And in the case where there's something that, that's fairly uncommon and might not make sense to have that in your organization to be able to contract for it. So I think it's less of, of, about scale uh, in geographic coverage than it is about uh, matching the, the population and obviously you want to have geo access as well uh, it doesn't make sense to take risk for patients who are 50 miles away from uh, the closest site of care that's just not going to work well or meet their needs you're out of network uh, costs are going to zoom up and the patients and the providers will be very frustrated so what role does individual responsibility play in population health um, my physician colleagues will always talk about the patients who uh, don't follow uh, directions or are non-compliant. There's, there's always anecdotes, and you could tie that into individual responsibility. I always tried to turn it around. Instead of saying the glass is half empty, it's half full, but it's incumbent on the physician or the delivery system to figure out how to engage that patient or the patient's family or if they can't, to guide them to a different provider who might be more capable. And sometimes that means, you know, finding uh, a, a good match for ethnicity or uh, race because uh, they'll be more attuned to some of the unique characteristics. Um, there definitely were patients when I was practicing, there were a handful who really needed to see a different doctor uh, with, with that and probably having a, a direct conversation sooner rather than later would do everybody a service. And at the same time, I had patients who came to see me who had been seeing doctors who I thought were very good um, and realized that they you know, came to the conclusion that it wasn't working for them and that they were going to try our practice and figure out if uh, we could better meet their needs. So how do demographics and socioeconomic status factor into population health? Well, we're certainly uh, realizing more and more uh, that 
uh, socioeconomic status and things like food deserts uh, play a significant role in the health of a population and, and drive health care costs. So uh, organizations that are doing population health and taking financial risk are going to more and more invest in some non-traditional uh, things uh, outside of actual uh, medical care, uh, whether it's air conditioners for asthmatic patients or uh, making sure that there's uh, you know, three square meals a day uh, as patients are rehabbing from surgery and need good nutrition. Uh, but those are trivial expenses compared to the cost of some of the complications that happen now uh, for patients that are disadvantaged. So I guess if you take that to its logical extension, you know, where does population health stop? Um, it, that's a good uh, comment. It's, it's a continuum. Uh, and you know, there, there's lots of factors that uh, impact health. Uh, one of the things that I've uh, become more and more aware of as I've watched uh, family members age uh, is dentition. And many, many seniors have lost most or all of their teeth and have a hard time uh, eating uh, solid foods and protein. Uh, and it just leads to a, a spiral downward. So investing in preventative dental care and possibly providing dental benefits under Medicare, which you know up till now, other than in Medicare Advantage plans, there's no dental benefits, uh, might be a really good investment that could avoid uh, other issues. But you have to think about this really holistically in, in terms of everything that impacts a, a patient. At this point, we're gonna wrap up. I wanna say thank you to Lee. If anyone has any questions, please feel free to send me an email to etower at thompsoncoburn.com. I'll do my best to reach out to Lee and get you answers. And uh, thanks everyone for listening in.